Hello and welcome to the Cafe Bitcoin Podcast, brought to you by Swan Bitcoin, the best way to buy and learn about Bitcoin. I am your host, Alex Danzig. We're excited to announce that we are bringing the Cafe Bitcoin Conversation from Twitter Spaces to you on this show, the Cafe Bitcoin Podcast, Monday through Friday, every week. Join us as we speak to guests like Max Kaiser, Lynn Alden, Thomas Strolight, Corey Clipston, and many others from the Bitcoin space. Also, be sure to hit that subscribe button to make sure you get notifications when we launch a new episode, or you can join us live on Twitter Spaces, Monday through Friday, starting at 7 a.m. Pacific, 10 a.m. Eastern, every morning and become part of the conversation yourself. Thank you again. We look forward to giving you the best Bitcoin content daily here on the Cafe Bitcoin Podcast. You guys just go ahead and riff whatever. It is a beginner Q&A today, so we can start right off the get-go with that if you guys are interested in doing that. If you're in the audience, you have questions about Bitcoin and uh, you'd like to get answers. Ant, Wicked, Jacob, all of these guys are highly knowledgeable. Ant and Wicked in particular, they're some of the smartest guys I've run across in the Bitcoin space. Uh, oh, and Tomer's here. Good morning, Tomer. He also, Tomer is an OG Bitcoiner. He's also what I call the Bitcoin shaman because he's he's a he's a lore master, you know, he's a keeper of the lore, a keeper of the history. He knows stuff about Bitcoin that a lot of Bitcoiners have for I mean he he's forgotten more about Bitcoin than most new Bitcoiners know. Uh and I learn from him all the time. So good morning, Tomer. Welcome. Hi, good morning. All right. I'm disappearing for a couple of minutes. You guys do whatever. Tomer, I don't know or anybody, if you guys watched that Game of Thrones show, but Tomer could be like the grand major of Bitcoin, someone could say. Please don't say things that might um, make me have to go out and slash my ego to pieces. So I just uh, try to do my part, which I do feel like. It's, it's interesting to hear people say these things because I do feel like there's stories to be told and I'm a storyteller and I have to find a way to tell these stories appropriately um, in, spirit, in an inspiring manner. So that's kind of my calling. I, and I haven't watched the Game of Thrones uh, series. I've seen commercials for it, but I, I don't have time. Yeah, well, the new one just came back. It was pretty cool. But I guess to get it rolling, to get the conversation started is like for Tomer, like when you were getting into Bitcoin, do you feel like the questions that you were curious about or asking are like the same questions everybody is curious about and still asking? Like, do you think the Bitcoin beginner questions will ever shift with uh, like, for instance, with the adoption, like the, with Lightning becoming more available and things like that? Like, it's a good question. Many of the same, many of the same questions are absolutely all the same. Um, how does it work? <laughs> what is cryptography? What is money really? How do we understand it? How much is a Bitcoin worth? Whether you think about it in dollars or like I, I in the early days, I was like, there's only going to be 21 million Bitcoin. There's like 500 million houses or a billion houses in the world is like a bitcoin going to be worth 30 houses it just seems to like conservatively speaking so that's like what how what what's the final value of this thing how does it scale 
is another question that people have. So we have a better answer now than we did in 2013, where we didn't know the answer uh, to the question. Now we've got a bunch, you know, the idea of side chains was there, but Lightning as a white paper and as an idea that might scale Bitcoin didn't come out until 2014, maybe 2015. I can't remember the exact date of the Lightning white paper. So I think a lot of the questions are still very much the same. Of course, if I haven't said it already, will the government stop it? Is, uh, is one of the very first questions anybody asks. I hope the wind isn't too bad. I'm just, I seem to be walking in a wind tunnel. So many of the same questions absolutely do get asked. The same questions as well as like, well, what's the difference between Bitcoin and all these other imitators? Is there a difference? Is there room for any? Is Bitcoin the only true one that's going to succeed? So yeah, I think, uh, I think anytime someone new comes to this journey, they have a lot of very legitimate questions to ask. And I think we've in answering these questions. I, I think there's a few new questions, like in the early days when hardly anybody mined Bitcoin and hardly any energy went towards it, there wasn't really any energy FUD about proof of work. It just it was like, oh, this makes perfect sense. It's, it's decentralized. It's permissionless. Anybody can come, can come. Anybody can go. It encourages people to act as efficiently as they possibly can. And it secures the network. So it's all there was only the good side of mining and mining was um, the, the most rapid escalation of computing power in the history of humanity. This thing went from like one laptop of worth of computing power to being even in 2013, when I first heard about Bitcoin and ASICs were just coming out, like the very first ones, and they were only doing like a giga hash per second as opposed to today's that do multiple, like tens of terahashes. So they're like tens of thousands of times more powerful and there's many more of them. Even then, Bitcoin was positioned as like hundreds of times more powerful than the most powerful supercomputer that exists on earth. So it was like, it, so it scaled horizontally perfectly providing security that it was already a feat of extraordinary achievement. And it had done so in only three years of existence, right? It had gone from Satoshi's laptop to Satoshi's and Hal's to three computers to people then started using GPUs and they just started using these things called FGPAs or FPGAs. And then we got to the custom chips, the ASICs. And uh, it was just this explosive growth as people started to accumulate these things. Didn't really have any spendable securing power but people could see, oh, this might really catch on and it's worth me dedicating a GPU and electricity or buying one of these FPGAs and programming it to do SHA-256 or ultimately paying one Bitcoin, which is worth a few hundred dollars for a one giga hash miner, which turned out to be a very bad investment. But um, but that was, uh, that was the early days, if I haven't gone on too long already. And I, I, and I wasn't really early, early, right? I was 2013. There are people who were 2009, 10, 11. Like I, I'm already, I only came in after the first halving. Did you pay one Bitcoin for a one gig hash Bitcoin miner? <laughs> I, I did so much worse. I bought shares in the company that made, with my Bitcoins, with all my Bitcoins, that made the one gig hash miners. 
Uh, and I and it was a, it was an interesting experience at first. It was terrific. They were paying me daily dividend, weekly dividends on the Bitcoin blockchain in Bitcoin. But what I paid for those shares in Bitcoin and what I ended up with taught me a very very expensive lesson uh, about um, one about ways to get wrecked in Bitcoin. You know. Um... And I'm I'm so I'm so late uh, compared to Tomer, but so early compared to so many others to having just come into this in late 2020 and early 2021. But um, I think that I think that the the questions around the properties of Bitcoin are always going to be the same. I'm hoping that and I think I'm actually seeing it, that what we're going to see that's different is the onboarding questions, um, I think, begin to change as the products get built out. So, you know, hopefully in the future, we won't see as many questions about self-custody as in the mechanics of how to do it, because it just becomes easier to do. And people, um, you know, gain this kind of understanding of of how to use these things innately as uh, the iterations of uh, the technology uh, surrounding Bitcoin, its use uh, and its onboarding continue to um, increase in not only their, um, uh, they continue to, to increase in, in the users, um, in the UI. So the user interface just gets better and better. And it's getting better and better. I'm sure Tomer can tell us about, and, and Rindall's in the in the audience too, I'm sure they can tell us about that the lovely the lovely signing devices that they had to deal with um, uh, back in the day. Well, it's got to become a it's got to become a cultural norm, basically, and it will over time as all things do. Like you know, it'd be the equivalent today of asking like, "How do you get on the internet?" Well, freaking everybody knows how to get on the internet today. But there was a time I can remember distinctively. Because I started a small business right when I got out of the military. I started a small business where I was going around helping people get connected to the internet because they had no freaking idea how to do that. And then there, old, you know, there was a time, I imagine, when automobiles first came out where people were like, what the hell is that thing? You know? Oh, my gosh. You can't drive faster than 35 miles an hour. It's going to suck the wind right out of your lungs. Your lungs are going to collapse and you're going to die. All that kind of stuff. It'll come my great grandma used to tell the story of the first automobile that she ever saw. And she, you know, she would ride the, the horse drawn, uh, bus. <laughs> they still called it a bus, but, uh, to school. And then, and then she saw a car one day, uh, the headlights and it, like scared the shit out of her. Cause she had no idea what it was. She thought it was just like aliens. a monster. Yeah. Aliens. Aliens. Yeah. It reminds me of that saying. How does it go, Tomer? You probably know the answer. To this uh, any sufficiently advanced technology seems like magic or something like that is indistinguishable from magic, right? Um, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. I can't remember who said that. Was it? It was like some science fiction writer, I think, or some. That's kind of true. I want to shout out to Dusty in the audience. Dusty, we're doing a beginner Q&A today. We'd love to have you up here if you if you're, if you're I know it's early Dusty, but you should come up here and teach people about lightning. I'm I'm sending you an invite. I would say I think one question that's new and very important today 
that wasn't a question back in the early days. Well, it's one question that replaced another. The question in the early days was, how the heck do you get any? Because there was, there was no swan, there was no Coinbase, there was no, there were no big exchanges selling Bitcoin or or there, there was this Mount Gox thing, which everybody has probably heard of, that went belly up. But you you had kind of sense that it was sketchy at the time, so you generally had to buy. Um, off of finding somebody in some way on the internet and meet them in person and hand them cash and sit there with your laptop while they sent you Bitcoin on your full node that was easy enough to run on a laptop back in those days because the blockchain was not that big. Um, and so today we talk about self-custody because there's so many people who will air quote sell you Bitcoin but not necessarily <laughs> give you Bitcoin. And uh, and then it was like, how do I find somebody to sell me some Bitcoin if you wanted some? Hey, man, thanks for the call. Tomer, you're giving me flashbacks. I remember, God, it must have been like fucking 2011 or 12 or something. There was a guy selling an iPod on Craigslist for Bitcoin. And I was just so excited to use Bitcoin. I was like, all right. And like, we like went to Starbucks with our two laptops that were like our full nodes, right, on the Starbucks Wi-Fi. Probably took us like half an hour to do it. We're like typing in the freaking address by hands, and I managed to do it. Uh, dumbest purchase I ever made, but it was it was glorious at the time. It's a lot better today, right? Like now you can just use your phone, you can like scan a QR code. It's like things just keep getting better and better in Bitcoin. Yeah, the UX does improve, doesn't it? Like, um, and it's true for all, all the technologies. Ryan Dale, good morning. Hey, good morning. Yeah. I was just going to say, um, first Bitcoin I bought was through a service called BitInstant. I don't know if anybody remembers BitInstant. You would go online and say, I want to buy, you know, five Bitcoins and, um, they would give you like a Wells Fargo account number and you'd walk into a Wells Fargo bank branch with cash and say, hi, I'd like to make a cash deposit into my account. And you'd like write down that account number on the account slip and you deposit <laughs> cash. Like, oh, it was, it was so great. A lot of trust in that. Do I remember um, trying to get, trying to get uh, money into Mt. Gox? And there was like a period where you could do it with PayPal. And it was like, you could just PayPal the money to Mt. Gox. Then Mt. Gox found out about it, or not Mt. Gox. Fucking, uh, but, yeah. excuse me. Oh, are you? Are we cutting out? I couldn't hear you talking. Sorry about. No, I got you. There. Go ahead. Oh, cool. Yeah, like so, like, and then and then PayPal was like, oh no, we're contributing to money laundering, or whatever, and they just like cut off Mt. Gox, and then like nobody could get their money into Mt. Gox for a while, and they were like trying to watching the price go like cr crazy, like twenty x or whatever, and they were like. I was trying to buy Bitcoin a week ago when it cost half as much. And because of the delays of getting my money through, like now I got to pay like $10 instead of $5 or whatever. It was a whole thing. Everybody was like scrambling and freaking out. I never did the bit instant one though. That's, that's, that's a little intense going into a bank and pretending it's your own bank account. That's crazy. It was, it was pretty awesome. Wow. Like, at the time, yeah. it was either that, or if you wanted to Mount Gox, you had to do, um, was it Liberty Reserve, which was super sketchy, right? So it's like I'd rather walk into a bank branch with cash, and you know you do a small enough amount that if you get ripped off, you don't get too mad about it. But after you do it a couple times, you're like, all right, service isn't going to steal from me. 
Yeah, if you start with small amounts and work up, you can kind of establish a, 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 a t- tendency towards it working. Yeah, I mean, there's you know, this thing where it's like a lot of people will say, you know, oh, if I knew about if I knew what I knew now, if I knew then what I know now, I would have put, you know, a hundred grand into Bitcoin in 2011. And like the reality is that you couldn't, right? Like you couldn't plonk huge amounts of capital into Bitcoin <laughs> in the early days. Like there wasn't a market for it. There wasn't the market depth. Like we didn't have exchanges where you could do limit orders. Like none of this shit existed. So like it, it like you know, if, if you're kicking yourself for saying, why didn't I dump my life savings into Bitcoin a decade ago? Like, even if you had perfect foresight, you know, you couldn't mechanically. It was the Wild West, to be sure. <laughs> There's Dewalla for a while. That that seemed to last the longest. Dewalla yeah, that was the last for a while. All right, so since I, I, I'm going to plug one of my stories that's written in a fictional style, and I'll, I'll uh, share it to the nest afterwards. Uh, for the uh, Bitcoin Times edition this year, I was to hurry called The Being That Changed Everything, in which I uh, spoke about the early days and just took, took us through a timeline of Bitcoin. I'm reminded about this now. And uh, I think it begins with something like on January 3rd, 2009, a new being began on the planet Earth. And it speaks about Bitcoin as this being. And it takes you through this uh, this history and this storied version that I've now been uh, la- labeled with. So I'm going to dig it up and share it. And that's anyone who wants to give that one a, uh, is welcome to. Let me go dig it up. So it's an interesting progression. Like you guys are describing, I wasn't buying Bitcoin back then. It's some pretty funny stories. And then you've got I, I remember when Coinbase came out, a lot of people said, wow, this is the first legit company doing this. And it turns out, I mean, Coinbase is great and all, but I mean, they still have their issues too. And then now, just recently, um, in the last 24 hours or so, I saw this, that Samsung Securities is has filed to open a um, crypto exchange in South Korea. So now it looks like the big, big boys are finally... Uh, Waiting in, that's an interesting development to me. Yeah, and I mentioned their their Samsung blockchain wallet that comes on the Galaxy line of their phones. Well, there's a tab on there for exchange where I guess presumably you can, but it goes to Gemini right now. So maybe they just you know maybe it's all kind of part of the plan. Well. I mean, a lot of people have been speculating about this forever, like the day that Google gets in or the day that uh, Samsung gets in or Apple gets in, and it just becomes default bundled with your phone kind of stuff. Um, And then they have direct access to that massive network effect of their customer base. And they're seeing all these, all this money being made in, 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 um, you know, supporting this stuff. If you, if you, well, I don't, I don't personally care for Coinbase's business model. I guess they make the vast majority of their revenue from churning out new shit coins. But I don't know. I could, I could see how they would want to own that, especially if they think that it's about to go mass market. Like to me, that's a pretty strong marker that, uh, you know, chances are they're, they're thinking it's going to go mass market. Sam's, it's actually kind of interesting that this is happening from Samsung for a couple of reasons. You know, one of them is just their, um, the, the 
amount of market penetration that they have and how big of a player they are if they start offering you know exchange that's huge um the other thing is something that's really interesting about trying to build bitcoin wallets on mobile phones is that like the apple secure enclave um you know so in in modern iphones for example there's uh, a little chip in there called a secure enclave which does um key generation and can do uh hardware accelerated and hardware secured like signing and encryption of blobs so um you know you can have encryption keys that are generated inside this like enclave and you can use them without the keys ever leaving and unfortunately um like normal android and iphones don't support the right elliptic curves in those uh secure enclaves to do bitcoin wallets so what everybody ends up doing is you um, kind of do all of your Bitcoin signing on the normal CPU and you use that secure enclave to protect your Bitcoin keys. Um, Samsung actually supports the Bitcoin curves in their secure enclave. So like Samsung actually has platform SDKs specifically targeted at uh, building things like Bitcoin wallets. So it, it's you know, it, it's a little bit of a bummer, like it's not available on all Android phones, but on Samsung, like they actually um, have been building APIs and platform support for doing Bitcoin specific things. So them launching, you know, a crypto exchange, hopefully it's, you know, uh, very Bitcoin friendly and not just a complete shitcoin casino. But it's it's interesting that, you know, they seem to really be taking a stance on building support for uh, I'll, I'll just say crypto assets from the hardware level up through now to services. That's yeah. a bummer. The Apple, it's a bummer. The Apple one doesn't support the right curve. That's that's sort of annoying. Yeah, it's a real bummer, and people have asked for it. Like people have filed issues against Apple's, uh, you know, bug trackers, and they've basically said that you know it's it's like not a big enough market. They're not really interested in doing it right now. It's not a big problem from a technical perspective for Apple to do it. Am I am I right with that? I it's mean, just they don't like, think there's a market. Who knows, right? Like, I I don't think it would be a, a big deal, but you know, like uh, uh, for all I know, there's a bunch of reasons why it's hard for them. Like, I I don't actually know, but um, it doesn't seem to be something that they're working on. It's funny because they they built the iPhone to, to literally be a hardware wallet, and it's <laughs> totally. So what'll happen is if if Samsung is successful in this endeavor and they do turn Samsung phones into hardware wallets and this thing takes off, then obviously, you know, the FOMO. The, the Apple Pay guys have been like secretly, silently coming around to Bitcoin meetups um, like for, for many years. I think it's on their radar for sure. It's just a question of when it makes... Apple tends to come to things late. They don't like to be first at stuff. They like to like do it right, but second kind of thing. Well, they also want to own it, right? They want to own the space. If they're if they're in it, they want to build a moat around it, and they want to they want to be the dominant player, right? That's only that's normal for these big companies, I think. Yeah, I mean, I'd give, I, I I'd give Apple a when, little bit of credit. So, like Apple, um, Apple's been our friend on the internet, right? They've introduced a lot of privacy features, ad blocking, anonymity privacy because they're not an advertising driven company anytime apple <laughs> you may remember when apple launched the iphone and it and 
all the ads were running in Flash and Apple was against Flash. Apple tried to launch something called the iAd with the little I followed by the words ad and they failed at it miserably. Apple is a Apple does a good job selling content and selling hardware and selling software. Um, and so they're, they, they've been reasonably good stu- stewards of internet devices. They haven't sold us down the river. They haven't sold our data to third parties to monetize us. They, they try to get us all excited about their hardware and their products to monetize us. But at least that's, you know, you're not the product. With Apple, the iPhone is the product. And Apple TV is the product. With Facebook or Google, you are the product. So I want to just speak out a little bit in Apple's defense, at least on those uh, on those grounds. Totally. I mean, also like like the CEO of Apple owns Bitcoin, right? So I think it's just a matter of time before Apple does something awesome with Bitcoin wallet stuff. I mean, especially if Samsung's deal takes off. I mean, the thing is, though, I mean, Samsung's. I mean, it's been since like what the S10. So it's they've had this wallet out here for a while, and I don't know how I don't know what like the adoption has been or anything. But well, I mean, like part of the problem, right, is if you're building an Android application, you don't want to build an Android app that like only works on Samsung phones, right? You want to build an Android app that works on all of the phones. So you either have to, you know, have code in your app that says, okay, if I'm in Samsung, if I'm on a Samsung phone, use this special Samsung API, which is great like i i hope bitcoin apps do that but um i can also totally imagine people not wanting to write you know special code just to handle samsung phones but you know hopefully they they have enough success in this like they make a really killer bitcoin app that ties in with their exchange that has really secure key storage on their phones and it's massively successful and google and apple say holy crap we want that too and then they add support like that would be great that'd be a great outcome for everybody I know a lot of times you'll you'll see these wallets that these big companies put out and like you can't like it won't be like what you call like a true wallet, so to speak, you know, and but I have I mean, I don't have like a ton of experience with this Samsung wallet, but I did mess around with a little bit They you can get your 12 words out of there. And it's interesting that they're using the, the three prefix on the address. Do you have any ideas why they would like go with the, the pay description cash address? Oh, exactly. times, that's why. Now, let's see older version of SegWit addresses before the BEC32 address format came out. So it's... Yeah, so they haven't updated, I guess, they're, what they're doing. Guys, it took a while morning. for Bitcoin Core to do it as well. Guys, good morning. Uh, can, can you guys stop making me FOMO? I'm trying to save my money for my, my block number. So you guys, the way you guys are talking, Rindal <laughs> and Dusty... You guys are making me FOMO, okay? So please. Hey, hey Tao, I haven't checked uh, Stack Chain today. What what are we up to? One twenty-seven. That's right. <laughs> first thing I check in the morning. Yep, I agree with you, Tao. That's the first. I, I always know where the tip is constantly. It's what I check all the time. Peter has tip awareness. <laughs> Ouch. I love that. It's better than checking the price, right? <laughs> no, seriously. I, I just, I really don't check the price much anymore. I just, I just look to see where the, where the tip is. And then I do my daily DCA and, and, uh, and drop my, uh, um, drop my, drop my stack join in. Yeah. I had a thought yesterday. I was scrolling through the feed and I saw these bots that, that'll tell you, you know, so-and-so moved, you know, 
X amount of Bitcoin for this amount, you know, this value, whatever. And I started thinking at what point, like there has to be a point in the future where it's just reporting stack chain moves. So what, what people in the audience may not know what we're talking about is a, um, is a Twitter thread called stack chain. And if you want to look at it, you can just do search for hashtag stack chain, all one word. And basically it's uh it's a human experience excuse me it's, it's a human experiment about social consensus that mimics the pro programmatic consensus of bitcoin and it's just a super fun um way to stack sats with a community of like-minded bitcoiners there's a lot of shit posting and a lot of memes um and a and a really high level of engagement and it really makes it fun and Basically, what we've been we've been determining is that almost everybody that is involved with StackChain ends up stacking more uh, sats than they normally would. There's like Tao uh, was talking about this FOMO. As you get engaged with this group, you begin to um, you begin to stack more. It, it, there's sometimes it's competitive. Sometimes you see other people stacking, and you're just like, oh, okay, I gotta go. I gotta get in. So it's it's just really fun. Um, just showing backstories, like the, the funny irony with PayPal blocking Mt. Gox is then like a bundle of years later, they were like, we're going to make our own Bitcoin exchange. It was like, but you guys were like fighting it in the beginning and then you just like switch sides. It's funny how Bitcoin makes companies do that. Eventually, everyone has to bend the knee. That's a uh, story of Bitcoin. So freaking true. I noticed the other day that Fox News had Bitcoin lists listed under currencies, not yeah. It was, yes. and it was leading the ticker. It was the first one on the ticker. It was USD Bitcoin, USD Euro, USD, so on and so forth. Yeah, that's a big deal. That's a big deal for kind of social calibration. That entire kind of a lot of people may see that and may not like in their mind. It may not tick anything off. Like it matters. But that just creates this kind of like social normality that it means Bitcoin is just, it's just growing lines of, of humanity. All right. Um, this is supposed to be a beginner Q&A session. If you are in the audience and you have questions, please request to come up. I promise we'll be kind to you. We won't be mean. There's not going to be any dumb questions. We won't make you feel stupid. Our goal here is to try and teach people about Bitcoin uh, if you want to do that, you're welcome. Also, we have a Telegram group, t.me forward slash Cafe Bitcoin Club. That's t.me forward slash Cafe Bitcoin Club. You can join that if you're shy. You want to type your question, you're welcome to do that as well. You know, it's it's so cool how Cafe Bitcoin has has progressed and evolved over time because I remember when, I forget what it wasn't called, Cafe Bitcoin. It's called something else. But I remember when when it first started, it was uh, it was basically a space where people just talked about their onboarding experiences and asked questions the entire time. And it's just so cool that it has evolved, you know, so much to become so much more than that as a spot of information and news. And yet it still goes back to its roots. It's really cool. Yeah, that was the Bitcoin Breakfast Club. Yeah, while we're waiting for questions, um, like I was thinking about how some people, um, instead of looking at the Bitcoin like all time high price, 
they like to look at what is the the low price and watching the low price go higher you know, five four or five years or whatever you just see it keep ticking up i have my own metric like that which is more social like how many people are involved in bitcoin when bitcoin's down in price and that metric uh, has been going gangbusters lately like you know if you want to call this a bear market i've never seen a bear market with this much activity going on like the conferences the events the meetups the the bit devs like they're just it's it's kind of insane and i think like the way this is setting up like we're getting this social group going such that when the next bull market happens i, I think it's going to be stupid insane All right. like we got a question rabbit old bed Hey, good morning, guys. I just have a question about the stock to flow model. I know, you know, it's controversial. Some people are for it. Some people are really against it, especially now during the bear market. Um, but when I look at the data going back to the beginning of Bitcoin, it, it seems to really fit well in terms of like the statistical R squared goodness of fit between the stock to flow ratio of Bitcoin and the price. It's like 98%. But I mean, in recent you know months, it's been um, you know, far out the deviation bands and uh, you know, a lot of people are doubting it, but the halvening is not over yet. And it, I've gone back and listened to a lot of the previous podcasts of Plan B where he explains the model and he says that you know, the target price for the model is an average within the four-year halving cycles. So this halving is not over yet. We still have 2022 and a year and a half left because the next halving is April 2024. So it still has another three or four months left this year and then all of next year to go up to the 135K or whatever you know it's supposed to be at. So, I mean, why are we, like, losing hope and slamming the model as uh, dead um, when there's still so much time left? And then Rindale, and then um, I want to say good morning to Brady Swenson from Swan Bitcoin. Good morning, Brady. Good morning, everyone. Hey, good morning. I was just going to say, I think the model model has two huge problems, which render it dead on delivery. Um, It... and neither this point I'm about to make is not either of those. It's like it's easy to overfit data when you're only looking backwards to come up with something that that fits it perfectly. The trick is in actually making a prediction and having the prediction come true. That's what we haven't seen. But when you understand the fundamentals of it, you don't have to understand the fundamentals of Bitcoin. It's a model that is estimating price without taking into consideration any driver of demand. So it's only looking at the supply. It says the supply drives the price without any function of demand and it's and it's priced in US dollars and makes no assumptions about what's happening to the supply of US dollars and their and their availability. So it's disconnected from demand and it's disconnected from the thing that it's priced in altogether. And so if it does happen to be correct, it's purely by chance because there's no rationale as to like I could come up with a model that has the same R squared that shows that the Bitcoin price in U.S. dollars is very closely reflected to the number of followers I have in Twitter. Take a look. I'm at like 26,000 now and across 21,000 around the same time. And for the first 14 billion years of the universe, I had zero followers 
and uh, to, and Bitcoin was worth zero dollars, and so I could I could really nicely fit a high R squared to these two things, and they're obviously unrelated. There might even be a little bit more relation. So I think the problem with this model is it's kind of it's this interesting notion that there's validity to the fact that an asset whose stock to flow is high or is low <laughs> becomes highly desirable, but that doesn't mean you can mathematically predict its price in another asset that doesn't have a low stock to flow without considering the demand for it. That's what I say as to why this you is, shouldn't count This on is it. a highly a highly complex quant model that very few people can understand. It's known as the TSIR model, the Tomer's star is rising model. Oh. <laughs> Yeah, I had some thoughts, unless you were going to jump in, Rindo. No, Tomer said what I was going to say, which is just, um, you know, prices, supply, and demand, and a model that only talks about supply and never touches demand isn't going to be accurate long-term. Yeah, I think, like, like at its core, the value of Bitcoin is the fixed supply. That That is the valuable thing. And if it, I would focus on that particular aspect and, like, eventually society will will have to come to terms with it being the hardest supply money that exists right but trying to guess when they do it that's that's a really really tricky thing to do and i think it's better for if it were me trying to learn bitcoin today i would uh, hope that i directed my energy towards understanding the nature of hard money and less so on the short-term speculative and i mean short-term as in like five ten years kind of thing and I would try to focus less on that and more on the overall long-term thing. Yeah, I agree with that, uh, Dusty. I think that, and as as people progress in their um, iterative kind of understanding of Bitcoin, um, at least this has been my journey. It started out that you know number go up, price was the most important thing, and now for me, it is probably the least important. It's just something that i am so interested in all of the properties of bitcoin and the ethos and how it uh, integrates into society and and changes thought processes and and patterns and you know it's just it's so interesting and for me you know prices just become something that is just uh, quite frankly is boring well, we 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 hope that number goes up right again and again and again we hope this number goes up i don't give a fuck i don't care what jerome powell says i don't care what biden says i don't give a fuck what anybody says one bitcoin is one bitcoin there's no dollar sign in the protocol there's no there's no there's not even bitcoin in the protocol there's sats that's it get more sats that's the game if you want the price to go up that means you want you want a pay reduction in the future because you're you're declining yourself sats you want sats. Be appreciative of the situation we have now where we have a fairly stable price at 20K and you can you can buy what you can afford. Don't You don't need to get crazy. We're going to be here a while, like you said. Just chill out, enjoy where we're at and accept what, what it is. I When I talk to people about Bitcoin, talked to a kid the other day about Bitcoin and I didn't bring up the price once. I brought up what it does, how they can't take it from you and the fundamentals that give it the property we seek and desire 
and appreciate because I know I can walk into my boss's office and tell him to go fuck himself if he does me wrong. I have that power because they cannot take my money from me. And I know, I know what it's worth. I know that they're not going to print more money and make the dollars I earn worth less and make me spend more time out here on this road. I, I work 4,200 hours a year and I do it because I get an appreciable compensation for it. If they, if they continue to print dollars, I'm going to continue to stat fucking stats. Nate, you're the best, man. Uh, hell yeah. Uh, hell yeah. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for allowing us to ask questions. So this is um, a question I've, I've just been, it's been bouncing around in my head for a very long time, and I don't know who to ask, so I'm going to ask y'all. Okay, so let me walk you through this scenario. So I bought some Bitcoin in 2021. Yes, it's 65000 <laughs> And let's say I put it in a cold storage. And then for the next 10 years, I'm accumulating sats. I'm putting it in cold storage. So flash forward 10, 15 years from now, I want to go sell some. How, do I, how in the world am I ever going to keep track of my cost basis and pay taxes on that, right? So if I buy it at 65 and then I buy it at 105000 and then you buy it at 20000 like, how is anyone keeping track of any of that? I, I have an answer from other people who have gone through this. I can say real quick before you and Larry Rindall. Um, like a lot, like the people in the past have gone through this, that they made so much money. The difference in tax basis from just saying you bought it at zero versus whatever they bought it for is so little, they just don't bother and they just claim uh, zero tax basis. Hmm. So, I, I'll, I'll, yeah, I, I think. I was going to say really quick. Um, so there's kind of two answers, and I would suggest you think about one or the other, but kind of prepare for the more labor-intensive one. And then if you end up not needing it, then that's great, right? So um, you know, if you're buying at 65k and then you sell at pick a number, right, 250, 300k, like whatever. Um, you, you definitely want to make sure that you know that your tax basis was like 65K and not, you know, 20K or something. Like that's going to be a, a meaningful hit to your tax bill if you have any significant amount of Bitcoin. Um, so, you know, there is software out there that is getting better all the time that, uh, so it does come with a privacy trade-off, but you, um, you know, punch in a UTXO or you, um, sorry, a, a unspent transaction point. So you, um, you know, give it what Bitcoins you're holding and it looks at when you move them and then goes and looks at historic trade data and says, here's, here's what we think you bought it at. Obviously, if you oh, do okay. that, you are doxing your coins to some like third party service that, you know, if you're not paying them, then somebody else is paying them and you have to think about like who's going to be paying them, right? So um, that software is getting better and hopefully in the future it gets integrated, you know, into other tax preparation software that, you know, like you already tell TurboTax all of your, you know, tax info. Also telling them, you know, what Bitcoin you sold is probably not a big stretch for a lot of people. Um, we're not there yet, but it's it's trending in that direction. What I would recommend, and I'm not a tax person, like go talk to your tax person, but what I do is um, I keep track of, you know, what coins I bought at what prices. And there's kind of um, a bunch of ways of doing this. Some people but that's, just but that's just... the problem, right? What if you buy every yeah. day? What if you buy a hundred bucks every day or whatever it might be, right? Like, how... if, I may, 
if I may. If you go, whatever service exchange you happen to be using, there's always a CS, CSV file that you can download at any time, and it has the exact timestamp at which you purchased. So you can always go back and reference. This is used for tax purposes at the end of the year. I, I went through like, I think four or five different exchanges this last year, and I had to download all those. I fed them into my tax service and everything came out hunky-dory. It took a little while to get my tax return, August actually. Um, but everything was accurate. I didn't have any adjustments from them and everything came out in the wash, no problem. Um, uh, I, I happen to use TaxBit. Uh, they work with the exchanges to integrate the, the the accounting systems into their systems, and it just you you identify which ones you're associated with. You you do your login, and everything gets downloaded. Or you can request the CSV file from those exchanges yourself and upload them to the service if you want. It's very minimal. If you have a lot of, uh, if you did any selling at all, uh, I will. I, I would recommend it. If you didn't, I wouldn't. It's just pretty straightforward. You have no no real tax concerns unless you did something like tax loss harvesting, which I would still talk to your tax expert if you have a considerable amount that you are working with so that you get the appreciable deductions that you re require because uh, they could they could identify some real opportunities there. An another thing that you can do to help kind of break this up a little bit is, do you know, I don't know if you know about coin control, but for instance, if you were to send all of your um, all of your Bitcoin to one address uh, it, it, one week, um, and then just label you can label the with Coin Control you can label it. This is the week of, and you could even put you know average price in there for instance for that week, um, and then the next week you select another address to send bitcoin to and you can label it that way so you can not only label it based on you know so how you're sending it out but you can kind of put in kind of an average there and like uh dusty was saying you know ultimately it's probably not going to matter but if you can or even two weeks right or three weeks or a month or however it is you're getting it off the off the exchange um so coin control can also help give you a better idea of of what you have in your uh signing device. i like that a lot thank you you're welcome. Thanks for coming up. Uh, next, we have... Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. Um, kind of a little bit of a pivot. Um, I feel like I understand all of the technical aspects that go into making Bitcoin, except I feel a little weak on the Merkle trees. So could anyone kind of speak to that and maybe dumb that down? Sure. Go for Tomer if you want. Sure. Um, so, I'm, so you're familiar with what uh, hash algorithm does, that it takes an input file and it digests it into a unique thumbprint that's 256 bits long that is random looking and has no way of being reversed? Yes, I understand that. And I okay. think I read something last night that even it was kind of like, stop saying that you're doing math because you're not doing math. You're inputting these, you know, the hashes right. and the SHA-256. Yeah. So I feel like I really do get that. Yeah, but okay. for some it, reason, the Merkle tree is still a little, okay. little I'll murky. I'll explain it to you. I'll explain it to you. And I'll just, I'll just for other listeners. So like a SHA-256, it, it's like if I had your thumbprint, um, it's unique to you. Uh, but I can't take thumbprints and make whole human beings out of them. So I can't reverse the thumbprint. I just know that if somebody said this is Tomer's thumbprint and they provided some proof and somebody shows up and gives their thumbprint and it matches identically, then it's the same, it's the same person. And, and this is in, in an oversimplified way what this SHA-256 album is. It takes a file of any size 
as little as one bit, as big as any arbitrary size, and turns it into a string, a series of 256 bits, a bit being a zero or a one. And that turns out to be a really, really big potential number, as big as all the atoms in the universe, which is why we never see this two digital files produce the same fingerprint. So what a Merkle tree does, and, and in Bitcoin, we, we use that to create the blockchain because we point the hash of one block to the previous block and we use it to create the proof of work because we need a very improbable number to come up so to demonstrate that you did all the work to arrive at that improbable number. And then we have this other hash-based structure, which is called a Merkle tree. And a Merkle tree takes a whole bunch of digital files and hashes them together in individually. And ha not, it, hashes, it hashes each of them and produces the fingerprint of each one of them. And then it takes pairs of them and hashes those two pairs of hashes together. So let's say it takes my thumbprint and Alex's thumbprint and it puts them together as a digital file and it, it creates the thumbprint of Tomer's thumbprint followed by Alex's thumbprint. And that's a unique number that also has no collision uh, with, with any other number in, in the universe. And it does this with every pair of transactions. So you can imagine if there's a thousand transactions in a block, the first thing it does is it hashes all 1,000 of them. And then it takes them in pairs and hashes the hashes of them. So now we have 500 hashes. And then it does that with the other pair of them. And then we have 250 hashes. And so you can see we're creating a tree-like structure, and like an upside-down tree that has a thousand hashes at the bottom, and then 500 hashes at the next layer up, 250 hashes. And you keep doing this until you have one hash left. And what's interesting about that is the only way to arrive at that hash in the world is to start with those exact 1,000 transactions. And so anyone who's verifying the transactions in a block will build the same Merkle tree and run it through a hash and say, oh, I, I have the same 256-bit number, which is just 32 bytes. It's like 32 characters on your keyboard. And you can... Just by looking at that one result, which is easy for a computer compare, to compare it to another result, verify that the block that you have contains exactly, bit for bit, the exact same transactions that the miner or somebody else broadcast is saying this is the valid block and these are the transactions in it. And so once again, we're able to look at a very, very small piece of information and prove that, it repre that it's representative of a whole big thing of information. And in a sense, it's a fingerprint of every transaction in a block. That's how Bitcoin uses it. You can use Merkle trees to create all sorts of interesting structures and you can sort them. But in the case of Bitcoin, it's a Merkle tree that represents whose one root hash, which is that final hash at the very top that has only one 32 byte number and it is correspondent to all of the transactions that are in the block. It's a thumbprint of all the transactions in the block. And then we, we take that Merkle root, we take the block hash from the previous block, we take the nonce for the proof of work, we hash all that, and if we get a number that satisfies the proof of work metric, then we actually have a valid block, and we know that all the transactions in it are valid. I, I hope I've that. done a decent job. That yeah, was a beautiful just, explanation. Just for other people that are less technical, I'd love to add uh, just at a high level, it's essentially what you're doing is you're taking a bunch of stuff and compressing it, but in this fancy way where you can without uncompressing the entire thing, you can prove some piece of it is, is in there. And that ends up being just really useful for doing things in Bitcoin and other cryptography type stuff. Yeah, there, there's other, there's a reason why we use this structure than just 
taking all 50 and putting them back to back. And that's what uh, that's what's being alluded to. You don't have to store like once a transaction is spent, you don't have to store it anymore. So you only need to store the 32 byte hash of the transaction and the whole Merkle tree still exists with authenticity because you couldn't make up some other one to get it all equal. But we're starting to get a, a you know, we can have an advanced conversation about SHA-256 on, on some other spaces or some other day here because it, it is kind of this fascinating, mind-blowing little algorithm that's so useful in so many ways and that the cryptographers over the years have figured out like ralph merkel figured out how to create this compressed data structure called a merkel tree and adam back figured out how to do proof of work using nothing but cha 256 and then satoshi figured out how to make a blockchain with it so it's a really useful really really useful little algorithm that has i actually got to meet ralph merkel I got to meet Ralph Merkel at a party, which was fun because like no one else really was like they were like they didn't realize they were in front of this like really cool, like you know one of the great cryptographer guys. And I was like fanboying so hard. It was it was a great time for me to meet him. Yeah, to, um, Dusty, I met uh, I met Paul Vixie one time. Who's the guy who wrote Cron? And that like I, I had a big fanboy moment too. But yeah, to Dusty's point, um, the general thing that a Merkle tree solves is it lets you do what's called an inclusion proof. So um, just the, the, the utility here is imagine you have some bag of items and I want to say, prove to me that this thing is in that bag of items and you can hand me a really compact proof that, that cryptographically proves that this thing is in that bag of items without you having to reveal the entire bag. And that gets used, as Tomer said, for um, you know transaction inclusion in a block, but also now that we have Taproot, there's like cool new smart contract stuff that we can do in Bitcoin that uses Merkle roots. Like Merkle roots are used all over the place in in Bitcoin and in other crypto systems. I love the bag analogy. Uh, one are other you... person, one very quick point I'll make and then I'll move on. One other person pointed out to me that now that we have Taproot activated in Bitcoin, Taproot also uses a Merkle tree to uh, to create a single hash of multiple different ways to spend a transaction. So there's there's actually Merkle trees within transactions if they're taproot transactions. So it's it's just another point of note, another utilization of the same thing. But historically, we've just used Merkle trees in Bitcoin to compress all of the transactions. In Merkle trees are kind of this funny thing that if you try to learn what it is from a description, it sounds really complicated. And if you just go like build Urkel tree yourself, you realize these things are really freaking simple. But like the act of actually building one just like for fun, let's say by hand, um, is is kind of an easier path than understanding them. Yeah, they have very interesting properties. Not just that they compress a whole bunch of things. They, like if if you sort the data in them, you can prove that you can very quickly and easily prove the data is or is not present, which is usually a very hard thing. Like how do you prove that a piece of data is not in a list? Um, by just looking at what at a very few number of entries. And so, it... so actually to do a non-inclusion proof, which is what you're talking about, you need a thing called a sparse Merkle tree, which right. is a little bit sophisticated. Yeah, Merkle trees give you inclusion proofs. Non-inclusion proofs take some other extra stuff. And um, Lightning Labs is working on a protocol called Taro for doing other assets and other tokens issued over Lightning. And those actually um, use sparse Merkle trees to do non-inclusion as well. Just a fun fact. All right. That has been a ton of information on Merkle trees. <laughs> I hope that's And we only scratched the surface. 
I think at this point we should do some um, announcements. After that, um, we've got Next Gen Mining up here. He has been very patient. Um, I don't think you've gone yet. So we'll go to you after announcements. So hang out. Good morning and welcome. You are listening to Cafe Bitcoin. This is a great place to learn about Bitcoin. A great place for your morning and news. I prefer to hang out for some of the smartest minds in Bitcoin to just chill. By the way, I want to say thank you to all the guys on the panel today. Everybody up here is really smart, really well-versed in Bitcoin. Throw all of these guys a follow. I really appreciate them spending their personal time to teach people ab about Bitcoin because that's what we do here, and it's freaking fantastic. We do it as a live show every day. Wednesday, start at 7 a.m. Pacific, 10 a.m. Eastern, roll for two hours. This is also a podcast. You can catch it on Fountain, Spotify, Apple. Um, something very cool that's coming up here in the near future is the Pacific Bitcoin Conference. I'm super excited about this thing. Um, I'm going. I hope you're going too. It's going to be a great chance to meet Bitcoiners in person, learn tons, make great contacts, network. If you want to get a job in Bitcoin, one of the best ways to do it is to go meet a bunch of Bitcoiners, make connections, network, all those kind of things. Plus, you'll make like friends that that are amazing. Like, you know, we we spend a lot of time in these spaces. We hear each other's voices. Some of you are in the audience. You've never been up here before, but you've heard us talk quite a bit. I'm sure you feel like you know us pretty good. It'd be great to meet you in person. So go to the Pacific Bitcoin Conference, November 10th and 11th, Santa Monica, California, Brought to you by Swan Bitcoin. Pacific Bitcoin is deeply dedicated to helping more Bitcoiners achieve financial freedom with Bitcoin and have a great time along the way. Right. Alex, can I? Yes, sir. No, I, I, I'm going to have to deliver on this if I if I mention it right now. But for the Pacific Bitcoin Conference, um, I've been asked to organize a set of like time travel uh, panels where we'll go back to 1982. 1992, 2002, and 2012. So all these 10-year spans and look at the state of the world in, through the lens of, of the culture, of the economy, and of the technology that will, um, that will be able to reflect on where, where were computers? Where was the internet? Where was Bitcoin at this time? Where was the culture? Where was the economy? What was happening with the fiat standard? at those times and the, it'll be four separate panels and we're, we're going to try to get some really interesting people who recall that era and, and come from th these different sectors of it so if you're looking for another reason to if you're on the bubble and not sure if you want to go to pacific bitcoin and that sounds interesting to you it'll uh it'll be it'll be one of the one of the things that we haven't quite announced there yet but that i'm uh, i'm working on and we'll do little videos for each one to re reflect on the time in the era Peter, what do you got? And then we're going to go with next gen, Dr. Remington, and then Ivy. Hey, I just wanted to say that, um, uh, you know how there's always like one dumb guy on the stage? That would be me. Sometimes I have something insightful to say, but um, I am learning every day from all of these people up here. Peter is an honorary guest on the panel now because he's consistent and he's loyal and he's been here almost every freaking day since the beginning of this freaking thing so just acknowledging that uh next gen Good morning. welcome 
Hi, can you hear me? We can hear you loud and clear. Great. Um, hey, thanks uh, for having me up here. Um, listen to you guys every day while I'm at work. Um, so I came in this space as a Ethereum miner, um, and obviously with the proof-of-stake stuff has changed my thought process of all these other coins and had a really good look at it. So I've been here to learn more about Bitcoin, and a lot of the things I'm hearing from like you know the Bitcoin mentality is is buy Bitcoin, hold Bitcoin, never sell it. I don't know Michael Saylor says that. But like for me, my time horizon, I want to retire. I want to be financially free. If adoption's not there in, say, you know, 10 to 15 years when I want to retire or 20 years, um, what do you suggest for someone like me that I want to retire, you know, I'm getting into Bitcoin? I'll, I'll answer this one if nobody else wants to give this one a go um i mean we're not here to give financial advice so everybody's situation is different like your your, your retirement objectives are going to be different the amount of money that you think you need in u.s dollar terms are, is going to be different um and it's all really based upon what you want for your retirement what you're expecting all those kinds of things now all that's um I think, you know, when you when you ask the question about my like, Bitcoiners say, you know, just don't sell it. I, I personally agree with that. Like, that's my strategy. That's my plan. Um, Nate was in here talking a little while ago about people wanting the Bitcoin price to go up. I actually don't want it to go up. I want it to stay right here for another year, if possible, or more, because I'm still stacking my objectives based upon what I want with my life, I want to stack. And if I can stack at these prices, I'm all about that. Um, that being said, like the sailor strategy is you never sell the Bitcoin. And I can see two great advantages in that. Number one, there's no tax event. If you never sell the Bitcoin, there's no tax event. You don't ever get taxed on it. Right. Number two, Sailor used this one analogy that I highly agree with in that if you have assets that are going to perpetually rise in value, you never sell those assets ever. You, what you do is you leverage them. Example, if you're one of the first families that came to the United States of America before it was the United States of America and somehow you own land in downtown Manhattan, your family would never, ever sell that asset. You would just leverage it. And um, I believe, and I'm, you know, you're seeing this over time. There's markers where there are more and more options where Bitcoin is becoming recognized as pristine collateral, meaning you can finance against it. Um, if, it, for example, let's say the Bitcoin price is fifty grand, or let's just say what it's twenty grand. And you finance against it, and then four years from now, it's a hundred grand. You can get another financing. You can pay off the old financing. You can roll it over, on and on. But interestingly, with what Dusty's doing, and I, and I this light bulb went on for me when I was at uh, Bitcoin Day classes or one of his sessions. Understanding what Lightning is, it occurred to me that Bitcoin could become the underlying asset for the entire global higher global transactional system with lightning uh and basically what that means is if you hold bitcoin you're going to be like i thought of it the, the the analogy that came to my mind and i could be wrong dusty correct me if i'm thinking about this the wrong way but like if you were one of the original shareholders in the rothschild bank 
it would be like that because you're going to have opportunities to leverage that pristine asset and and mobilize it to to make returns now nowadays the only way that looks is DeFi, which is a gigantic shit coin casino in my opinion but it's going to evolve. You're already starting to see. When you see big players like Samsung get in, JP Morgan get in, Goldman get in, this is the direction I think that that will all go. So I don't know uh, if that's helpful or not. Tomer raised his hand and then we'll go with Ann. Okay. Uh, so just a couple of things in context. First of all, you shouldn't follow that particular strategy unless you have studied Bitcoin enough and have developed a personal conviction that that is what you should do. Right? Like everything we say in Bitcoin is don't trust, verify. And that's not to say that Michael Saylor is not trustworthy, but the, the, the ethos and the credo is you should figure these things out for yourself so that you're not left suddenly surprised by some difference in subtlety or nuance that you didn't see, you didn't see coming. And maybe the right strategy for you is to dabble and diversify across a bunch of things. But the one other thing that I'd say in terms of the question of long-term holding, like say, say 10 years, is how do you compare, when you come to understand Bitcoin, how do you compare it? Like what's a bet, this is going to sound facetious, but it's, I actually mean it's serious. It's like, do you have any better ideas? Like what's a better idea than Bitcoin? truly scarce money that anyone in the world anywhere can use forever at any time without anybody else's permission that will never be corrupted or inflated. That is like a really, really good idea. And it's shown that it can stand the test of time and various attacks and all these other things. If we look at the alternative coins, the other cryptos, they've all depreciated against Bitcoin after their initial marketing hype and marketing thrust. There's so many of them, it's completely confusing as to understand which one might be better or why it might be better. None of them have this truly decentralized characteristics, so they all can be stopped or corrupted or taken control of in, in some way. So Bitcoin stands unique among these things, and it's so well suited for the future that we have, which is a digital future. Like Bitcoin ends up being compared to gold often, but we've seen, we know that I, I can't send gold to you on this call. I can't divide a piece of gold and send you $5 worth of gold and you'll have it within seconds and you'll be able to verify that it's pure gold and unadulterated and that no, I can't take it back from you. Like gold just doesn't do what Bitcoin already lets us do. And so it's it's this perfected, perfect, and this is what Michael Saylor says, right? It's, it's the first time we've actually engineered money, engineered some invention to possess the attributes that we want money to actually have, to work as a store of value, to be able to spend it, to be able to send it, to be able to save it, um, to ultimately come to a view for many people that it is the ideal unit of account because of its stability. So there's my, uh, my passionate rant about Bitcoin and how it's different from anything else that's ever existed or does exist. Let's go with Ant, Nate, and then uh, Dr. Remington. Ant. Yeah, thanks, Alex. I mean, you know, I don't give financial advice. This isn't financial advice. I mean, don't follow me for stuff. You have to do your own research and, and you know, or follow anybody really, you know, for stuff. You have to do your own research and figure out what works for you. And, you know, uh, but as far as this specific thing, you know, it's very common. It's a very common question. Most there's a lot of people that come to Bitcoin because of, you know, it hasn't it won't go away as long as they ignore it. And then the price keeps going up over time, it seems, you know, and so you come in looking to get more money one day, you're going to cash out and it's like an investment play. But 
and and I know that you said and you know retirement, but I mean it's that's the idea that a lot of people come in and they want to buy Bitcoin with the hopes that one day they're gonna you know catch one of these big waves that they keep hearing about or seeing while they've been on the sidelines, and that one day they can cash back out, so to speak. Um, but then over time, you you start to learn that Bitcoin is money itself, and you're like going, okay, well you know you've got these different things, and it's even better now with with the with the systems and the infrastructures that have been built in you know in recent times but then over time again you you start to learn that it's literally like the best money available right now to humans and then possibly of all time like that's where you start to get to with it then at, at, once you have that perspective then you'll realize that when you hear people talking about like hodling forever or never selling and whatever you know it's it's a bet that in the future that Bitcoin will be used in, you know, a circular economy around the world that, you know, it's it's so easy to, you know, spend Bitcoin directly. You don't have to, you know, quote, like cash out for for some kind of fiat money to, to live in your retirement days. You may have money. You may have gold or silver under your pillow. You may have some Bitcoin. Money may not even, you know, we may have gone through a, a Thiers law event at that point. Who knows? And it may just be Bitcoin. I don't know. But, you know, at that point, you don't need to sell. You know, you, you just use Bitcoin. But I can say that even right now, like like that, what I just said, that whole word piece, I mean, that really was like an older perspective. Because if you look at what's been built right now, I mean, out of today, you can use your cash app. You can use the Bitcoin on your cash app uh, with and then even with uh, Jack's upcoming, you know, NCR play. You've heard about homes that you can actually pay in Bitcoin for to buy a house. I mean, you can use your cash app right now to send somebody some money and it, they don't even you know, they can take it right through, you know, and they can convert it on their end to cash if they want. Like like if you need to pay your fantasy football dues, which are coming up. You could use your cash app with Bitcoin and send it to the commissioner. I mean, it's just we're living in a world right now where you can literally if you retired tomorrow, you could spend some time and go, well, I can spend this cash or I can spend this Bitcoin like that's where we are. But it's it's not about like spending and walking away from the table, like cashing back out into cash that that doesn't that, that's not the idea. Well, address his question. Um, he, he said, what happens if adoption does not happen? Well, you can attack this two ways. You can attack it by going after adoption and demanding that your, your representatives understand Bitcoin and actually actively engage in the community to understand it and, and grasp the concepts that we're, we're attempting to explain to everybody here. Or you can hedge against it. If you don't think it's going to work out, do what's right for you and your family, okay? We're not, we're, we're here, we're maxis, we're going to tell you everything you, you're going to ask us, but you you are the only one that can write for you and yours. So, Man, I, if, that's if, a good if, point. I just want to, I'll finish up real quick. If you want, if you if you made your bet and you think Bitcoin is, is a great opportunity, it's that great asymmetrical bet, be out there and promote it. Get, get people adopting it. Everybody you talk to about it, every one person you get to understand it, not necessarily convinced, but you, you explain it to them and they understand what it is, they're going to they're gonna talk to somebody else and multiply that interaction you just had. And then you're going to do it again. And that's how you would enable adoption, is going out there and getting the word out. And that's, 
that's the whole point of what we're trying to do. I, I, if you, if you don't understand it, that's fine, brother. But I, I, all we're trying to do is explain this simple thing that is, it's, it's already part of the protocol. I can't change it. You can't change it. It is what it is. And if, if we adopt it, if everybody, like, I don't even know if we have to work on adoption because the fiat system is going to collapse on its own. Like, I don't have to do the work. It's going to do it. Like, the dollar is the biggest advertisement for Bitcoin. I don't have to do anything. That's that's the play. So, yeah. um, good luck to you and yours. Bitcoin needs no marketing department. <laughs> All these knuckleheads that are have currently driven this train towards the cliff and has shown no signs of stopping are, are doing it for us. Um, that was a great point you brought up, Nate. I missed that part about his question, what if Bitcoin adoption doesn't happen? And um, I think Tomer hit it, Sorry, like, nailed clarify, it on the head. It wasn't, if it wasn't adopted, it's just more in the time frame that I want to work. Like I'm worried oh, that I see, I see, adoption will happen maybe in my child's generation and not mine. Right. So then, then the next, I guess the next thought is, is that if that, if, if your plan is you're relying on Bitcoin for your retirement, like you're, you're looking for a Hail Mary, basically, you need to analyze all the different potential assets you could potentially invest in or all the different business ideas or all the different ways of building that stack and, and just decide, well, what looks best to you? And I mean, that's like Tomer's answer still applies. Yeah. I'd love to speak on that a little bit. Um, like, the the if you invert the question okay like just for me like i view bitcoin as like the the kind of obvious choice for, for for my retirement but if i wasn't gonna do bitcoin let's say i was like all right fuck bitcoin um i'm gonna do something else what would i do uh okay you got real estate right it's been like 65 percent of uh, real estate mortgages go through the government so that's propped up by the current fiat money system i don't trust that at all um you okay then it leaves like the stock market you look historically, they, they, they grow, they peak, then they, they fall upon collapse, collapse, right? Just, just from like a, from first principles, companies are not long-term investments. They're, they're, they're inherently shorter term than, than the hundred year metric. And then on top of that, you have the money printer going into the stock market, screwing all that up, right? Then what ends up being left? If you've eliminated the stock market, eliminated real estate, um, Bonds are also tied to the fiat system. There's just nothing left. I, I can't see a single thing that I would want to pin my retirement to that exists out there after having thought about it from my own frameworks. And Bitcoin is the only thing that's left. I will agree with you on this. And this is why I didn't buy real estate and I bought 10 miners. <laughs> Yeah. And it, like, listen, one thing you can be very highly confident of when you do the research yourself is that Bitcoiners, Bitcoin developers won't change Bitcoin on you and render your miners, if you were mining Bitcoin, render them no longer functional or no longer a part of the protocol. That, you know, this, the, the spirit of what you hear here is the spirit that controls. Bitcoin, which is that of sovereignty for individuals, self-determination, and no, no one being able to take control of this thing for their own purposes, whether those purposes are benevolent, malevolent, benign, uh, malicious, whatever, whatever it is, it's very, very hard to change Bitcoin. And the only grounds under which Bitcoin can be changed is something that everybody can see is necessary or beneficial 
for for sovereignty. Right? When I say beneficial, I don't mean for one party at the expense of another. I think this is the core problem with the fiat money printing that our society has put itself in, is there are no good retirement investments. You know, they just aren't. And all of them come with all of these insane risk attributes. And I think if you, for me, as I really started to realize that, like Bitcoin became the least risky way to go about this that exists. It just makes sense for that reason. So welcome to the brotherhood whenever it's your time. I mean, right, I, I feel like I feel like we've exhausted that question. Let's move on. Um, I believe Dr. Remington is next. Good morning and welcome. Hi, good morning, uh, Alex. Uh, good morning, everyone. Can you hear me all right? Yeah, we got you loud and clear. Great. Well, I have a I have a technical uh, question, but it's a question that has tax implications. So I'm hoping someone can help me with this. Um, so imagine a scenario, if, if you would, for the purpose of this question, where you have a, a retail miner uh, who's receiving, let's say, one million sats uh, on a regular basis from their, their mining operation from the pool. And so this, these UTXOs are, are coming in on a regular basis into their hot wallet, let's say. And, and after, uh, let's say, 100 of these UTXOs are received, you want to transfer uh, these UTXOs into, into cold storage. So over this period of time, if, if you assume that the Bitcoin price has been appreciating, then each of these UTXOs would have a different cost basis. And you, you, at this point, you'd have a total of one Bitcoin. But to send that to cold storage would obviously incur a small fee. And my understanding is that the IRS would consider the, the payment of that mining fee, that transaction fee, as a taxable event in, in, a, in a rising price environment. And so technically, you would owe taxes on this relatively small amount that you've paid to consolidate those 100 UTXOs and send them off into cold storage. So, so my question to the group is, does, does anyone know how to determine from which of those 100 UTXOs the, the fee is actually being paid from uh, or, or if there is no way to, um, to, de to determine that? Um, the, the current consent, this is this is a gray area. I don't think the IRS has announced anything in the U.S. about this, but the current sort of group consensus is that moving things into cold storage is analogous to moving money between two bank accounts you control. And, and moving money between two bank accounts you control is not a taxable event. So most Bitcoiners go under the presumption that consolidating to cold storage would not be a taxable event. So the the... the my understanding is the IRS would view any payment of for of of Bitcoin for services to to be a taxable event. So so my interpretation would be that of course I, I realize that if if one could transfer between one's own accounts and not incur any sort of fee, then that wouldn't be a transfer. That wouldn't incur uh, that wouldn't create a taxable event. But but the payment of a fee. For like the, wire the transfer, transfer. yeah, it, like it would be transfer. it would be the equivalent of uh, of uh, you know let, let's let's say buying a stamp, right? It, 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 paying to, to purchase a, a stamp with Bitcoin that would clearly be a tax. Can I can I maybe just jump in a little bit because there's two, yeah. there's two questions. So the first is currently the fee to do a Bitcoin transaction is measured in nickels, 
uh, maybe it would be measured in singles of dollars. So let's say you had to declare a $10 fee that you paid um, and that somehow you want to say that you sold $10 worth of Bitcoin. Well, even if your cost basis was zero, your taxable event is at most $5. So we're talking about no matter what. Uh, there is no, no way to know which UTXO paid the fee because if you're doing a transaction that has 10 inputs, and the output of it is one address that pays $5 less in Bitcoin than, than it took in. There's no way to say it's, it's, <laughs> there's no way to say it came from like, you're, you're putting them all in a pile together and taking five cents off the top. No way to say which one it came from. So if you want it to be really conservative, you might say it was the most valuable Bitcoin that you had. If you wanted to, if you wanted to pay this tax, I, I've never heard before of anyone suggesting that an on-chain Bitcoin transaction to yourself triggers any kind of taxable event, even around the, the de minimis mining fee that you pay. But if you really wanted to just cover yourself, like <laughs> whether you did or didn't pay $5 in taxes, this is really the, the most dangerous uh, thing to be, to be worried about. So un until the Bitcoin fees are $10,000 a transaction, I think this question kind of falls into it, it's it's yeah that that's that's, that's very helpful I, I i appreciate it so the general consensus of the group if i understand is is that these fee even even in in the case of a rapidly appreciating price where the realized um uh, uh gains would be let's say over a few dollars uh the general consensus of the group is these are so minimal that uh they don't anticipate this triggering right. the irs's ire but in, in the case that one does wish to be very pedantic and account for uh, the the tax gain that occurs uh, Wait, with uh, payment of a fee, you can you can attribute that fee to any UTXO you want. You can either use first in first out or last in last out. I think the disagreement here is on the first part. You said realized gain. I, I do not believe anyone thinks it's a realized gain. It's an unrealized gain, and moving it between two big accounts does not make it suddenly realized. Yeah, I'm just saying. If I'm, I'm not, I'm not telling you which accounting policy FIFO, LIFO, yeah. LIFO, uh, you can you can use. I'm just saying you can be as conservative. You can pay the highest fee that you want, and you're and it's going to be five bucks because at most, right? Because no, I, if I don't know if someone takes a look at mempool dot um, space right now and sees what a transaction costs, they're, they're not even costing a dollar right now. So let's say you took your, let's say you had to pay a fee of a dollar, you know, so you're, so what you're reporting to the IRS is that you actually sold a dollar's worth of Bitcoin, which you might've had as much as a dollar's gain on. Yeah. And so you're declaring that you've had $1 of capital gain and you're going to send four quarters or four nickels to the IRS as a, as a result uh, to cover that massive gain that you had. So I, I think as long as we're still dealing with these very, very small fees, even like even if it was $100 and so you had to pay a $20 fee, if, if this was the interpretation, we're still talking about very small amounts of money. For, oh, okay. Mm -hmm. for what you're two, two, two quick points also, two quick points. I'm sorry, Dusty. One is that for people who are in the audience who are unclear about this, you can move Bitcoin to and from yourself as many times as you want. You can transfer it from wallet to wallet to wallet to wallet. I hear people, like when I'm talking to clients at Swan, people get confused about this. That is not a tax event. You can transfer the assets to yourself, left, right, and center. It is not a tax event. What Dr. Remington is talking about is the on-chain transactions fees, which technically is a, is a service fee. So that, that's the difference between that. And then 
Um, yeah. Secondly, I, I, I agree with Tomer. I kind of think about it like Lawrence Lard. Like, as far as I'm concerned, yeah, it's a gigantic dick sucking the lifeblood out of the dog and the tick can go screw itself. If you're so, interested in a workaround for this, I'm just, I'm like, I, you know, this is not tax advice, but I, I've worked with a lot of tax. Maybe let's say there's a $2 fee at the time. So you might want to create a special, let's say you've got 100 transactions you're consolidating. Do 100 first transactions, buy $2 worth of Bitcoin on the day of the transaction from Swan Bitcoin, yeah. and then spend explicitly that exact amount of Satoshi's on the fee, even if it's a little bit more than you need to pay. And that way you can say, oh, look, I had 100 transactions. I consolidated the sum of the the sum of all of the remainder is equal yeah. to what those 100 inputs were. And then I had one transaction for $2 that was at the current cost base of Bitcoin. And you can see that it's gone now because the, the total worth of all of the transactions added up is all the previous ones and not this $2. Yeah, that, that's, so that's the that, excellent idea. Convincing. Yeah, that, that, that's actually what I'd uh, considered doing is, is, is purchasing some additional Bitcoin to, to pay the transaction fee and then account for for uh, to 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 save the trouble of calculating uh, any sort of capital gains from uh, the change right. in price on UTXOs that are being consolidated. Yeah, that's excellent advice. And that's exactly the kind of thing an accountant would look at and go, "Oh yeah, I see. You bought two dollars worth to pay the fee." Yeah, yeah, very very helpful. Uh, okay. That's actually a great yeah. idea. <laughs> yeah, this is this is very helpful, uh, and thank you to the group for for answering uh, both both the, the question that has tax implications about whether this is important or de minimis from the IRS perspective, but also for answering the technical question, where does the, the transaction fee actually come from? And my understanding from everyone's answers is, is it's impossible to know from which UTXO the transaction fee comes from. So I appreciate it very much. I've been searching for these answers for a very long time. So thank you for having this uh, Q&A. You're, you're very welcome. And, um, uh, you know, I, I'm glad I could help. Well, yeah, I, uh, I just wanted to say, Sorry, I misunderstood your question the first time, but Tomer got you got you right. So that's awesome. All right. Excellent. Thanks for coming up, Dr. Remington. Appreciate your support and uh, for coming up asking the question. Next, we have Ivy. Good morning, Ivy. Hey, good morning, everybody. Um, yeah, definitely. This is, a, this is a great opportunity to um, speak to you guys. I've been seeing you seeing your spaces go but you know their um life's ups and downs you know this is my first year here you know messing around with bitcoin maybe two years but you know really just learning about it all um but i do want to say something about taxes something that you know uh, from my understanding you know this is you know i'm not a you know i'm not a tax uh i'm not an accountant but I'm pretty sure that you're going to pay taxes on what goes into your bank and you're going to pay fees on your exchange. And those are basically the same thing from my understanding. Um, I don't know if that helps anybody, you know, <clears throat> understand how the taxes um, are working. I'm not sure what TXOs are, um, but I'm pretty sure that your exchange has all your information. So when you when you get a report from your exchange, you know, it'll show basically everything that went back into your bank account, which you're liable for taxes. Um, let's just say you put in ten thousand dollars in your bank and you take out five thousand. 
um, a year later, I don't think you pay taxes on that. If you put 10000 mm. for that bank account. So, Ivy, hey, question. Please. Sure. Ivy, did you did you come up to ask a question, or are you sh- are you are you coming up to share your your views on on tax stuff? Um, because just, those are two different things. I honestly, I just came up to speak, try to say hello to everybody, and um, you know, the tax thing. I was trying to figure out myself, so I just wanted to give my two cents. Radio. We're going to try and stick with questions at this point. Um, I'm sure everybody has views. and appreciate all your views. I appreciate you guys being here and, and participating, all that kind of stuff. But we have a limited amount of time. I want to make sure that we're asking questions that new people might have so we, we can provide them that kind of info. I think we've kind of beat this tax issue into the ground at this point. So we're going to move on. Frankie, good morning. Hey, good morning, everyone. Good morning, Alex. Thank you for having me again. Uh, my question goes, uh, I guess, towards the maybe the uh, adoption thing and also the, the centralization of the network itself. Uh, apologies if it's not properly elaborated. Help me on that uh, because I have been seeing like, a lot of, of uh, projects, new projects around you know El Salvador and also uh, around uh, South Africa, Zambia, and everything that they are trying to uh, you know work on, trying to. Uh, help on spreading adoption as much as they can with different type of projects. And I was wondering um, who itself plays like uh, an underlying factor role in this adoption, uh, you know, uh, I would say uh, roadmap or something, because uh, some of them are focusing on into mining. Some of them are also focusing in, into developing like uh, specific kind of uh, applications that will help uh, people to, uh, create a circular economy using Bitcoin. So I was wondering who's like uh, like the, the most important uh, part on this adoption part, if it's either whether on uh, Bitcoin miners or uh, Bitcoin core uh, developers, or just by simply uh, orange peeling people around. So that's uh, like the question that I would love to clarify. And Or maybe if you can point me out to some sort of uh, resources, articles or anything that I can go ahead and uh, Take a look on. I would appreciate that too. Thank you. Hey, um, one really interesting thing about Bitcoin is that nobody's in charge. <laughs> so, um, and there's no strategic plan, and there's no marketing department, and there's no, um, and there's no employees, and there's no CEO. Uh, so it's hard to say what's the most important thing. Um, Everybody, everybody can contribute in their own ways. Like everybody standing up here on the stage is contributing because that's the best way that they can contribute. And people who are doing mining in various regions are doing it because they think that can work. And they don't have to ask permission. There's no human resources department. There's no head of mining. There's no head of education. This is a completely open system. And um, I've written an article in my, in my book called... Uh, I'm trying to remember the final title I gave it. It was something like why, why, Bitcoin, why Bitcoin's talent pool is growing so fast. And it really is um, this idea here that anyone can come and go as they please. Anyone can do whatever job they want to do for Bitcoin. No, you don't have to be interviewed. You don't have, you don't have to be hired. And th- this makes it you know, very hard to stop and very hard to track what innovation is taking place and it also doesn't mean that anybody has to decide which which things should be done and which things should not be done there's no trade-offs people do the things that they want to do and can do 
and they don't do the things that they don't want to do and can't do. But nobody's going to stop anybody else from doing anything because nobody can stop anybody else from doing anything. So I think your 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 <laughs> your question is very interesting and like, but we'll only know the answer in hindsight to say, well, all these things happen and they all seem to succeed, or some of these things failed, and that freedom to experiment without betting the whole entity on any one of these things is part of the beauty the anti-fragility and the livelihood the ability to evolve that bitcoin has so if i understood your question correctly i hope this kind of weird answer uh gives gives you the answer you're you're looking for and you can get my book at swan events.swan.com slash why bitcoin and it's an article towards the end and the book is free Are you trying? Are you asking because you want to help out somehow? Yeah, that's it. That's right. I'm trying to help people around to, you know, get uh, around with uh, all what's happening around the war and uh, around the, uh, I would say, the, the country here because uh, things are complicated and they get uh, the entire concept really quick. It's, uh, it's pretty easy, for, fairly easy for them to understand uh, without the technicalities and everything. So um, that's why I'm wondering, you know, to just set up uh, some sort of. Uh, kind of a, a pathway to follow because I know that uh, all of this contributes, but uh, perhaps it will be kind of hard to maybe go for the mining part uh, in terms of infrastructure, energy costs, and so on and so forth. So that's uh, why I'm kind of like trying to wrap my hand have around. You, uh, Frank, have you heard, heard of the group called BitDevs? Not to be honest. Yeah, there's this, there's this, um, it's kind of like a franchise of sorts. It's this group that uh, uh, people across the world making local events to talk about Bitcoin. And the idea is you make a local event where you are, and then every month you have what's called a BitDevs event. And you, they, they help people um, set up BitDevs in their local, in local community. So if, if you went and, and looked up BitDevs, it's B-I-T- D-E-V-S, you probably Google it. I don't know the exact domain, but if you reach out to those guys, they they probably would love to help you set up a BitDevs uh, chapter in your country. It'd be a great way to contribute. Awesome, thank you. We'll have a look at it. Let me see if I can find it. I'll try to DM you the, the thing. Appreciate that, thank you. Hey, hey, good morning, everybody. Frankie, too. Um... If you do something like that and you need help with a website to reach out and DM, uh, but just a comment on the, the original like roadmap question. Uh, one of the beautiful things that I love about the Bitcoin ecosystem is people are solving the problems they need to solve and they're solving it on top of the base layer that will not change or is slow to change. Right. So it's that's the, the beautiful consistency about working in the Bitcoin ecosystem is if you have a completely different problem and, and it's a global ecosystem. And so the problems, you know, here in the U.S. where I'm at are completely different than the problems, say, in Africa. Right. So that the African developers over there, um, they're using, you know, text message data uh, to send Bitcoin around using lightning. Right. So it's a completely different problem than what, you know, I have here in the U.S. fit and they're developing with that. slow to change or 
hard to change, et cetera. So, et cetera. So it's, it's, we're all playing in the same ball field, but we're solving different problems based on where you're at and what you're. So, uh, Frank, I, I found the guide for starting your own bit devs and I DM'd it to you. If that's something you're interested in, it would be an awesome way to uh, contribute to your local Bitcoin community. Thank you. We'll look at it. So I guess uh, Peter has uh, his hands up. So. Peter, did you have something? Yeah, I actually, I actually have a question, but um, I, you know, I, I want to let the people in the crowd uh, be able to come up and ask first. The answer is twenty-one million. <laughs> Such a gentleman. Bingo. Ah, uh, uh, hell yeah. I hope I say, I'm saying your name right or your handle right. Uh, do you yeah, have another question? I do, I do. Thanks for allowing me to ask one more. So I'm new to the space. I haven't even been in here for over, over a year. Um, I'm in sales healthcare, right? So I'm not a software developer. I'm not a techie. I, I'm not an economist. And I have loved this space so much because it seems, the more I learn and read, it just seems so obvious to me what's going to happen to the fiat system, the collapse of the world economy. And then here we have Bitcoin that steps in, right? My question is, I listen to so many really positive things about Bitcoin. And I would love to hear from y'all where, so I'm in sales, like I said, it's always best to know your competitor almost better than you know your own product, right? And so I don't get the, I don't get the flip side of Bitcoin. Like where can it fail? I've heard Lynn talk about this a little bit. Um, but I'd love to hear your perspective on where are the holes in Bitcoin? How do you think it could fail? Do we go back to a gold standard? I don't think so. Not in the world we live in today. So to me, Bitcoin seems inevitable. But I know the government doesn't work like that. Like, so walk me through, kind of talk to me about the holes of it, right? Where, where, what keeps you up at night when you think about Bitcoin? It's probably the hardest question to ask Bitcoiners. <laughs> I know, I know. It's that's why I feel like I can't get the answer because everything I read, literally, I, I listen to a podcast, I read, I read an article, and I literally, I go to Swan and I buy, like so. But <laughs> so I just, the more I learn, right, the more you buy. But there has to be, there has to be a counter story to this. Well, so, it, it, I mean, what keeps? Can I ask you what what keeps you up at night the most? Because maybe there, there's so many different ideas out there and. Before you answer, I'll just say Bitcoiners have tried to think of everything. And there's blogs out there with every identified attack and what the recourse against it is. The system is built to survive. Um, and survivability is the key, it is the paramount and primary. It's job one for every design decision. And, but mm -hmm. go ahead. What, what keeps you up at night? I think the thing that keeps me up most at night is how the United States is ever going to lose. How, how are they ever going to let go control of the fiat dollar, how are they ever going to say, okay, fine, you know, we'll, we'll add Bitcoin to, to our balance sheet, right? Because like if the U S does that, they're, they're basically giving up, meaning like, I guess they're um, accepting defeat. And I don't think that we would ever do that. And so I well, don't understand how that whole transition is actually going to happen without like nuclear war or something. I, I don't know. Okay. I mean, this is, so this is a really great historic question and it's, it's going to take a long time to answer every facet. Of, of it. But the US dollar 
is a relatively, the U.S. dollar as a fiat standard is a relatively recent phenomenon in the history of the United States. It's right, not, 51 years, right? <laughs> yeah, it's not, it's not like the, the United States existed for 150 years without fiat currency, with sound money. And the United States was a, 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 better, a better culture and a better producer and a better innovator and a winner of wars and a, you know, and a, a peaceful isolationist country during most of that period of time. So giving up the fiat money printing standard and returning to a sound money standard is not the end of the United States. If anything, it's a rebirth of many of the fundamental principles of property rights and privacy rights that the United States was founded upon. So I would just say, like, let's not worry. Let's not worry about whether it's an American. Now, you may say, well, I'm not really talking about America. I'm talking about American politicians and mm -hmm. insiders who have all this power. And will they give it up? And this is not the first fiat system that's come about. And they've all failed before, even though the Roman upper class elite class that was decadent and lazy and stupid didn't want to give it up. They were decadent and lazy and stupid and they lost the power. And mm -hmm. I hate to call our politicians decadent and lazy and stupid, but they're probably the three most appropriate words I could come up with to describe them. So there, it, I, I just, I, I don't think that you have to be fundamentally concerned that, there, that we're going to slip into a vicious kind of totalitarianism where they're going to hold a gun to your head and insist you accept the U.S. dollar when the whole world has ceased to accept it. There's, there's huge geopolitics at play here, right? Other countries mm -hmm. are starting to accept things other than the U.S. dollar. And, it, and unless the U.S. is there with an uh, aircraft carrier say, you better accept the U.S. dollar or bombs are going to start dropping on you, they're going to start changing their minds. And, then, and this thing spreads throughout the world. So I, I don't know if that gives you enough of an answer to the mm -hmm. question. Like this is the world plays out slowly. I would love to tack onto that point. Oh, sorry. Give your response first. Well, so it, basically we would just vote out the politicians that aren't pro-Bitcoin and that it'll slowly happen that uh, that's way. One, that's one path. And another is that the purchasing, you know, it, like how did how did marijuana essentially become legal? It wasn't because politicians decided it should be legal. It was they, they declared war on it and they lost the war, right? The war on drugs. That is a is really over. good example because I'm from California. So I've seen okay, that whole yeah. thing play out. I right. love that. That so was America great. had a war on drugs and drugs won, right? And America had yeah. a war on poverty and poverty won. And America is having a war on inflation and inflation is winning. And America, like, it's just because you declare war on it and you're a superpower doesn't mean you win. You have to have a winning strategy. And America can declare war on Bitcoin. And I'm pretty confident that Bitcoin is going to win um, because of the track record of politicians. I just love to tack on to that point. Like, there, there is a real... If the U.S. dollar is to be a threat, there is a path that to happen, and it involves the government cutting back spending uh, probably dramatically, like by, I don't know, a half to maybe even two-thirds, and becoming really, really fiscally responsible and just turning off the money printer and saying good on their promise that they won't ever print money ever again. Now, if they did that, I'd get scared. But what are the odds they're going to do that? Mm -hmm. Well, but probably none right they're not going to do that <laughs> huh. hey, hey good morning I, I just wanted to share a perspective because I, I that's kind of like my keeps me up at night thought process um and, and i'm relatively new in my bitcoin journey as well and, and so what i personally have been doing to, you know to pre prepare or whatever is is surrounding myself by like-minded individuals that that understand what's going on um you know setting me and my family up in general for what's going to happen because 
historically speaking, when empires fall, there is blood that is shed, unfortunately. It's not mm-hmm. maybe as widespread, um, but, but it does happen. And there's a chance that it could be peaceful, too. So it's like you can prepare for the worst and, and hope for the best. Um, but the, the circular economy aspect is, I think, the, the most peaceful way that we do it. When people start, I think I just saw a tweet from Odell, uh, something like, you know, people are still buying Bitcoin, so we're still so early. But when people start earning Bitcoin day to day, that's that's when we've really hit, you know, uh, an adoption that is somewhere. Um, and, and so that's that's my local push is like starting a meetup, trying to educate small business owners, trying to get people to at least understand what it is, understand that it's an escape uh, from the, the current system that they're in. You know, there's a lot of disgruntled people on, on they're all over America right now and they're, they're mad at whatever. Well, Bitcoin is a way to opt out from the politics because politics has been corrupt by the corrupt money supply. And so that's kind of been the angle I've taken. I've moved to an area that is more uh, amenable to sort of the Bitcoin ethos. Um, you know, people around me understand what proof of work is, maybe not from saying what proof of work is, but, um, you know, they understand it because they live it right. Like I'm in the gym with people that are living proof of work. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I go buy my produce from the farmer that puts the, the seeds in the ground and harvests it, right? Like, and so he's providing me his proof of work uh, as I give him some money. And he's, he's a Bitcoin. He asked me about it. And I'm, as soon as he's done farming all season, uh, this winter, I'm going to be talking in, in orange pill and him getting him set up for payments so I can pay him next year for his crop in Bitcoin. Um, and all that to say is I hope that I'm isolated enough from the you know, whatever the fall of the fiat system, that it will have as little impact on me and my family as possible. And again, that's, it's just one perspective. It's just one idea. But that's kind of I've had the same thought before of like, man, the government's got to fight this at some point. Like we've I think we've only seen the beginning of them fighting Bitcoin just mm-hmm. using information. But I, I, I think we'll get to a point where it's going to be a lot nastier. Right. I like I like Tomer's analogy of of the America declared war on marijuana and lost. I never thought about it like that. Yeah. That's damn true. And here's the thing: there's a lot more passion, and there's a lot more um, motive, and there's a lot more grit, and there's a lot more brain power, and there's a lot more focus behind Bitcoin than there is the marijuana movement. I'm not like trying to you know, punch down on the marijuana movement. I'm just saying some of the smartest people in the world are working on Bitcoin. And what is more greater of a human motivation than all of your labor being protected versus freaking stolen from you? I don't know, man. It's pretty powerful. Yeah. I I also think about the United States completely rejecting Bitcoin somehow, but it's going to grow outside of the United States. It already is. Like, they're a huge huge pockets of development and improvements going on outside of the United States. So in a worst case scenario, if I lose my keys in a boating accident again, uh, and, and I have to live it out until the United States comes back around, may, maybe that's a worst case scenario. Uh, or maybe I'd take a vacation to El Salvador. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Congress so, is really good at bringing, see, I'll make a quick point. Sorry, Terrence, we're no, fast, okay. I promise. They're, they're really good at finding the CEO of a company, piling them into Congress and grilling them and then passing regulations to make it hard on that company. But with Bitcoin, there is no company. 
the Congress has tried to find the CEO of Bitcoin to file them in already, and they failed because there is none. And and governments, our government and governments in general, just they can't fight decentralized movements. There's just no mechanism that they have in their disposable to be able to do that. Unless, unless the protocol is somehow centralized. Now, this is a really interesting phenomenon that's occurring with Ethereum right now. I just saw this thing this morning. Uh, thanks to Rustin. Shout out to Rustin for for putting this in our um, in our show notes today. But uh, so apparently, the Uniswap front end has blocked over two hundred and fifty quote crypto addresses related to DeFi crimes. This is all Ethereum stuff. Like Ethereum is a centralized protocol. The majority of the of the processing power is on <laughs> freaking. Amazon Web Services and and things of that nature, which they know where they are. They know where those data centers are. They know who the people are. There are people that they can arrest that doesn't exist in Bitcoin. But hold on, Alex. Isn't um, Uniswap called a, a decentralized exchange? Isn't that what they call themselves? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So they, they call themselves decentralized because they can't actually be framed as centralized. Because if they are framed as centralized then they have actually committed securities fraud by selling unregistered securities. So they have to maintain this idea that it's decentralized, but the truth is it's really not. Yeah, so it's decentralized in name only, with the acronym DINO, which is very useful. In marketing only, but yeah. not in legal reality. <laughs> I mean, this is very important, right? Like the difference between, like go, going back to this marijuana analogy, marijuana couldn't be, a war couldn't be fought against marijuana because there's no CEO of marijuana to arrest and throw in prison. There, there's no head office of marijuana to shut it down. A marijuana company, easy enough. You find a CEO, you throw him in jail, you shut down the offices. But marijuana is a decentralized plant. It grows. I mean, truly decentralized technology is like it's like it's like playing whack-a-mole with hundreds of thousands of nodes like okay so this is what brought me around to bitcoin i don't know if this is helpful to you i've said this before in here some people are like you guys keep repeating yourselves yes because we're trying to teach new people like i always thought that bitcoin's the greatest the greatest weakness was the government was just going to shut it down someday i believe that all the way up until Around 2019, when I did enough research to figure out, oh, they can't shut it down. Why can't they shut it down? Because it exists on hundreds of thousands of nodes all around the world and on nodes on satellites in space now. If they wanted to shut it down, all the governments of the world would have to agree to shut down the internet simultaneously. Then they would have to somehow locate these hundreds of, no hundreds of thousands of nodes with copies of Bit the Bitcoin blockchain, in other words, the ledger, the history of every transaction that's ever occurred and shut them down as well and make sure they were never turned on again. I mean, it just think about that. It's fucking impossible. They can't even build a fucking website for Obamacare for $3 billion. I mean, there's no way. I like to always uh, look to the China ban on this topic because you know you want to talk about an authoritarian government that cracks down hard on their people when something's banned um you know bitcoin in china went to zero when they announced the ban and you can go look up the metrics for yourself today and uh i think it's a pretty clear example of the resilience
All right, I feel like we've beat that topic to death. Are you are you satisfied? At hell yeah. <laughs> yes, actually, yes, I thanks, John. I appreciate it. All right, go ahead, Terrence. Okay, so Sequoia Capital Family Office, this former um, VC who worked there, they asked me. I had a one-on-one meeting with them after he left Sequoia, so not in his official capacity. But the reason Sequoia at the time, this was a few years ago, did not invest anything in Bitcoin is because they couldn't get around how it was free open source software, meaning relying on volunteers who might get grants and depending on the good graces of funders, right? And so that question kind of bothered me in the back of my mind. I'm still buying Bitcoin in size and holding Bitcoin, but it's like, how do you continue to get people motivated to support the code if it's just a bunch of volunteers? And after a while, it becomes, you know, not that sexy. Like maybe Bitcoin is not that sexy right now after it's fallen from 69000 to the current price. So here's the answer that I had to ask many, many people, and I encourage you to do this because there are a lot of people in Bitcoin who know stuff, but they don't know everything. And if you don't feel like you're getting an answer, just keep asking. So I asked many developers that be in Clubhouse, Twitter Spaces, in person, got shitty answers all across the board, B-plus answers. They were horrible. The best answer I got was from Brian Trolls, who said, look, free open source software already works at scale, it's called Linux. And what they do is because they're billion dollar companies and trillion dollar companies built on top of Linux, using Linux, whether it's Facebook, uh, Google, whatever, when the code breaks, because at some point they will screw up and it's a collective action problem. When the code breaks and they fuck up because not enough people are looking at the code, reviewing it, maintaining it, improving on it without having critical software bugs. What happens is these big companies that benefit and sit on top of it, they will spend money to maintain the code. They're going to have their own developers. We're just working on open source. Microsoft does this. They all do this. So that's why it's going to work on Bitcoin, too, because the incentives actually are there for the Bitmains, the Coinbases of the world, even Coinbase, but, you know, Kraken and others us um, to support Bitcoin core open source de- developers or hire our own. It's just too much. Uh, it's too important and too much money is at stake. So even though I posted in the nest, Rose Beef, who's the co-founder of Lightning Labs and CTO, he thinks there's less than 12 people who really understand Bitcoin core code. Um, that's okay because it's a known problem and people are working on Bitcoin core developers are incredible. If you ever meet some of these people, whether it's Carl Dong or um, Gloria Zhao and uh, Peter Woolley, these people are astoundingly smart. Some of the smartest people I've ever met. And I've been around um, pretty smart people all my life. Um, these people are think they already know about the problems and they're working on it. They're going to improve the technical documentation. They're going to improve systems, modularize the code. We're not going to be totally dependent on Bitcoin Core as the only client implementation, on and on and on. So I think um, for me, the critical software bugs was one of the, and just lack of interest, lack of incentives, because you're depending on volunteers. I'm a capitalist. I like volunteers. I really want economic incentives to be there. And I think the incentives are there when you when you dig uh, deeper. 
damn, Terrence, that was fantastic. <laughs> Thank you, sir. It was beautiful. And there's a funny irony that uh, one of the guys that started um, the Linux kernel work is the guy that also started Lightning, <laughs> Rusty Russell. There's <laughs> a real overlap there. Can we get him on here sometime? That's yeah, maybe. If, if Dusty knows him, maybe Dusty, like you could. Yeah. By the way, also. Go ahead, Dusty. Oh, my vibe is he's more of a like heads down, get things done kind of guy. But, you know, maybe one of these days. I don't know him that well, but, you know, maybe one day I'll like go make it a goal of mine. Sounds like a fun goal. Awesome. I was in that. Thank you for that. I was just going to suggest to the audience as well. If if you guys, if there's someone you'd like to hear on Cafe Bitcoin, shoot me a DM, shoot Jacob a DM. Um, and especially if you know them personally, can make an introduction. We're always looking at, we, we care about what you guys want to hear and what you guys want to listen to and what you want to learn. Um, it's all about you guys. So, um, yeah, that pretty much does it. Uh, does anybody have any final comments that they think are important to make pertaining to, today, to today's discussions? We can do that, and uh, then we'll wrap. If not, then we'll just wrap. I got one last thing to piggyback on Terrence there. If the Bitcoin core devs stopped working today, Bitcoin still works you know, feasibly into the, well yes. into the future. So. Uh, you know, they could go away and new people can have plenty of time to learn that code base and, and figure out, you know, the problems that were lost or the, the knowledge that was lost. Yeah. And it's been, I mean, it's been 13 years of testing with the, with the, basically the biggest, um, like, what do you call that? A hacker's prize? Like, you know, if somebody can figure honey out pie. how to break it, honey pie, that's the biggest one ever. Bug bounty. Bug, bug bounty. bounty. Yes. It's a 300 and something billion dollar bug bounty. Let's go. 13 years, guys. TikTok next block. There are these guys that set out to like prove that Bitcoin is broken because one guy wrote a whole book on it. At the end of finishing the book, he was like, oh, fuck, it's not broken. And he became a Bitcoiner. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. That's like that climate guy that's a Bitcoiner now after trying to figure out why Bitcoin's so bad for the climate. Now he's all in. Yes. I love it. All right. Uh, I want to thank all of you guys. Like uh, Everybody help up here that's on the stage, throw these guys a follow. You guys are awesome. Rindale, Dusty, just Tomer, Ant, Wicked was up here before. Just everybody who comes up here and spends your time to help uh, educate people, man. I really appreciate that, and I admire it. It's so cool. It's one of the things I love about being part of this community. I call it a community. Some people are like, there is no Bitcoin community. Don't say stuff like that. You don't represent it. Look, I've, I've met a lot of people who are what I call Bitcoiners. They share the same values as me. As far as I'm fucking concerned, that's a community. Cafe Bitcoiners are a community. You have been listening to Cafe Bitcoin. The place for your morning news, a preferred hangout for some of the smartest minds, Bitcoin to chill, talk about what's going on. A great place to learn if you want to learn about Bitcoin. We'll be kind to you, I promise. You can come up here, ask your questions. We're going to try and do these uh, beginner Q&As once a week. Might be Tuesday, might be Wednesday. Depends on when we have other guests, but we're going to keep doing this. Go back to our roots, as Peter says. This is also a podcast up on Fountain, Spotify, Apple, everywhere you get your podcasts. You can throw myself or Swan Bitcoin a follow to be notified of when those drop. Thanks to Swan Bitcoin. 
the sponsor of the show, my crew, Aunt Shane, Sats for Life, producer Jacob. I am your host, Alex Danzig. I work with Swan Bitcoin. Want to know more about Swan? Jimmy DM. Happy to help you. Again, thanks to the speakers. Appreciate you guys. Everything you do. This is what we call getting on the mission. Get on the mission. If you don't know what that means, hang out. You will figure it out. By the way, I might be, possibly, maybe, wearing a hoodie made by Bitmegs, who is in the audience. At B-I-T-M-E-G-Z. Totally custom. Says get on the mission on the back. I love it. I wear it all the time. Probably wear it too much, but I freaking love it. (laughs) She can make you all kinds of custom stuff if you want check her out all right that's it for the day guys love all of you go out there have a great day crush it